Welcome to the Teachers Unified Podcast. I'm Sarah Lerner. In this episode, we'll hear from Rachel Archambault, a speech-language pathologist, public speaker, and gun violence survivor. She speaks about her experience at MSD, how she's helping to educate about trauma-informed care, and her unique perspective in education. So I would like to start by introducing a good friend of mine, fellow Ginge, speech-language pathologist, all-around badass, Rachel Archambault, who was a speech-language pathologist at Stoneman Douglas. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. It's it's uh, been a long time coming, I think. Yes, absolutely. We have a lot to unpack and a lot to talk about. So we'll start where I always start. Tell me about your family, your childhood, where you grew up, and then we'll get into post-high school stuff. So my name is Rachel. I am from Coral Springs, Florida, which is basically the neighboring town to Parkland. I went to Terravella High School. I have two younger brothers. They're twins. So we're 21 months apart. So I've just been talking a lot to people recently. Uh, my friends are having babies and they're talking about having one child. And then I'm like, oh yeah, well, my mom had me. And then 21 months later had twins and everyone's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. No so kidding. yeah, but my brothers and I are very close. Um, and I went to school at UCF and ended up coming back down this way. Uh, University of Central Florida in Orlando is like three hours away from where I grew up pretty much. So I've only ever lived in Florida and um, yeah, I'm back home in South Florida. All right. So talk to me about your time at UCF. What did you do after you graduated and how did you find your way to Stoneman Douglas? I went to UCF. I have said that I wanted to be a speech pathologist since, I don't know, I think middle school, I was saying it consistently and people were rewarding me for that. They were saying, oh my gosh, I've never heard a kid say that they want to be a speech pathologist. So I went to UCF, declared that I was going to be a speech pathologist, went all the way through. I graduated a semester early, came back down to Coral Springs to apply for grad school. And I got back into UCF. So I just ended up going right back to where I left, uh, which ended up being great. I met some lifelong friends in that program and it was great. After I graduated, came back down to South Florida, trying to figure out where I wanted to work, whether it was in a medical setting or working with students, working with children. I didn't know. I had never worked in a school setting before. And I ended up joining a contract company for speech pathologists, especially ones that have just graduated. What ends up happening to many speech pathologists right after they graduate, we end up in the school system because the medical setting, you need a license. They can't give you a license unless you have a job offer. So it's this cycle that you kind of have to break in order to get into the area that you want. So I joined a contract company and they said, I'm going to send you to a middle school called Stoneman Douglas. And I was like, I don't think that is a middle school. And they're arguing with me about that. And then they finally were like, oh yeah, it's a high school. So two days before school starts, I started at Stoma Douglas in August, 2016. So you came there the year before everything. Yes. Yes. So I was already knee deep in teaching, yes. but I had been at MSD two years at that point. Yeah, I started <laughs> I started teaching before you started high school. This is this whole conversation <laughs> is making me feel very old. All right. So in your second year in education, you go through the shooting at school. Yes. As much as you're comfortable, but can you share your experience from that day? Yes, I'd be happy to. Um, well, I don't know about happy to, but well, I feel comfortable doing so. Thank but, you. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it was my second year, which really somewhat became my first year because as a contract employee in our school, my first year, they treated me a little bit differently. When I ended up coming back that next year as a district employee, I had to start from scratch. I had to, I basically was lumped in with all the first year people that year. 
So I had to do some of the training programs and everything. I was, I had to do the tier program that we offer in our district for first year teachers. So although I was there a whole year and understood Douglas and understood the people, I was still like a newbie essentially. So February 14th comes around. We have a fire drill that morning, um, which is a normal thing when we work in schools. It happens all the time. Then later that day, we had another go off, I guess, another fire alarm go off, but it wasn't a drill this time. So because I'm a speech pathologist, one of the complaints that we have as a field is we do therapy in closets, essentially. So my first year at Douglas, I had three different rooms. They kept moving me around. I had two large classrooms and then they're like, we need this for actual teachers and actual classes and everything. Um, So my second year, I was put in a security closet, a security room, which was very, very tiny, could probably fit maybe four kids. And these are big high schoolers, you know, it was a tiny room. So my room was directly across from the 1200 building. When I opened my door, that's what I see. The stairs are right outside my door to go downstairs to the 1200 building. When the fire alarm went off that day or that second time that day, I actually had another teacher in my room and one of my students from speech. The fire alarm went off. I was like, all right, come on, everyone. We got to go. I know it's annoying. Let's go. I make my way outside of my door and I see things were not in place. Things were not where they should have been. During a drill, we have people standing at posts with their walkie talkies kind of ushering us out and no one was there. I looked directly downstairs and I saw someone who was deceased um, outside of the door. I took my kid's backpack, grabbed onto her, and I threw her into my room. And what was interesting, because my room was a security closet, mine was the only door on campus, pretty much, of the classrooms that had an automatic lock. So I had to go, I had to re-unlock it to get us back in. So I go back in with the student, and there were two students kind of running around outside that were looking lost. I grabbed them as well and brought them into my room. Um, Didn't know who they were, but brought them into my room and we stayed there. Um, One of the interesting perspective of being a speech pathologist or just my situation because of my position, because I'm in this room, that's not really a classroom or anything. I ended up in my room for two and a half hours that no one came to check. I had these big, huge windows. Basically there, there was no safe spot in my classroom. And we had just had some trainings a month or two before, like not too long before. Um, They had told us that we were going to have a drill that is going to sound very lifelike. At the time, I was dating the track coach. And the track coach had one of the the starter guns to start the race, you know, and it's not a, a real gun. It has blanks and everything to start the sound. So I was like, oh, that sound is what they were talking about. This is that drill that they were talking about. It's happening now. So stayed in my room for two and a half hours with these big windows that I'm just looking and saying, like, there there's nowhere for us to hide in here, especially with five people in such a small room that I put the three large children under a desk, myself next to the door and the other teacher across from the door. Finally, they shout out to Chelsea Briggs, who realized that she hadn't heard from me. She talked to a cop outside. She had been evacuated much, much before we were. She said, can someone go check on Rachel? And finally, about 20 minutes after that, someone did come and get us. It's weird to think back on that day of all the things that happened or just like all our experiences and everything. And we're almost six years now. We're, we're very close to six years. And it kind of seems like a dream, but it also seems like yesterday. It's a very interesting uh, perspective. You're absolutely right. And I have said that anytime I've talked about that day, it seems like years ago, but it seems like five minutes ago. Yep. And I don't think that changes the farther out you get from it. Just for perspective, my classroom is around the corner from where your office is. Right. And I never went that way for evacuation. And hearing you describe what you saw, had that been my route, I would have ended up right outside of your room when the fire Mm -hmm. alarm went off with 80,000 kids of my own. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even think about like what you must have seen when you got outside, because I know what I heard when I got outside. 
And I know how small that room is. And I don't know how five of you were crammed in there. I was in my room with 15 kids, which I mean, my room is like a palatial estate compared to your your closet. Um, But I was in there for about two and a half, three hours. And I kept thinking like, nobody ever comes back to visit me. Mm -hmm. Like I think people forget I work here half the time. And everyone I was talking to had already been evacuated. And I remember in some chat, probably with a couple of English teachers, I'm like, can someone please let people know I'm back here? Because it was already like 5, 530. And I'm like, hello? Like, am I ever going to be released? And they probably got to me shortly after they got to you. And I think all the time about like what would have been worse or what would have been better, you know, if I got out immediately or to be sitting there because another perspective of my situation is that the room next door to me was Miss Johnson, the reading teacher. Mm -hmm. Her closet backed up against like my wall. So she put however many students, 20, 30 students inside that closet for around the same amount of time that I was in there. You know how rumors fly during this whole thing. Like we were trying to get as much information as we could via Snapchat versus like Twitter. Twitter was the first thing that I saw about it. My first friend that called me was in Philadelphia at the time, like before my friends in Coral Springs or family knew that they saw it on the national news. But because Miss Johnson's closet was right next door, I heard kids hyperventilating and I heard this boy's voice that was telling people to shut up. And I text my mom that I was like, I think I'm going to die. Like, I think there's someone next door to me. I think someone is holding them hostage, which it ended up just being a boy in there that was trying to control, you know, the he wanted everyone to be quiet. And there were people crying. There was a girl crying. That's when I talk about trauma, it's not after the fact, I look at it and say, oh, I wasn't in danger at that point. I thought I was in danger at that point. Like I text my family goodbye that it it was that close. And with the windows open or not open, but I had all the blinds shut, but they are big windows. And I was Mm -hmm. just thinking like, there's nowhere for me to go here. And when we had people come around and show us the safe corners in my room, like before everything happened, I told uh, the cop at that time, I was like, can you come and look at my room and tell me where my safe spot is? My safe corner is." he came in and he said, you're effed. So I I was also thinking that in the back of the mind, in the front of my mind during the situation was I kept repeating that to myself that I'm not safe in this room. There's so many layers to each of our stories and situations of what caused us stress at that time. And it doesn't matter if we can look back on it where the damage was done. It, It damage was done across the school based on our own perspectives and experiences. Absolutely. And I don't remember anybody coming in showing me where my hard corners are. I'm sure someone did, but I don't remember. Mm -hmm. I do remember at some point my classroom phone rang and you could have heard a pin drop in my classroom. Like none of the kids spoke. I'm sure they all stopped breathing. Like it was silent in my room the entire time. And my classroom phone rang and the kids all like looked at me and I'm like, don't even think about it. Mm -mm, mm -mm. And then it seemed like somebody was like jiggling my door handle and they looked at me again. And I'm like, if they need to get in here, they will have a key or they will, you know, Mm -hmm. they will get in. But those are the only two like sounds we heard one of the kids had a laptop and asked me if it was okay if he used his laptop. And I'm like, uh, yes, because I kept checking my phone, my computer, my laptop and my desktop were both on my desk and all 15 kids and I were under the board at the front of my room, which you couldn't see from the door. So that was the only safe place, which turns out that is the safe hard Mm -hmm. corner in the room. But I was getting information from people on the outside because there was no, certainly no internal communication. I couldn't find anything on Twitter. I had posted, I think on Facebook, like there's an active shooter on campus. And then anyone who had my phone number, like since the dawn of time was texting me. I don't remember feeling unsafe, but I was not in the same situation that you were in. So it is completely understandable why you felt that way. And for the cop to phrase it that way is it probably was like in jest when he said it. But in reality, that's horrifying. 
It is. And that was replaying through my mind at that time was just, I am not safe. We are not safe in this room. And to have five people in it was just like, I felt responsible for the safety of the kids. The two, I I still don't even know their names. We saw each other around campus after, and we would just like smile at each other. It was like, we didn't care to know each other's names, that it was like, we're going to have that memory. The other one that was a student that I had for four years or I think two years at that time. And I ended up having her for four years. That was a hard graduation um, when when those students left. That was yeah. the 20, 2020 year. But just all these relationships and having the other teacher in the room and we were getting Snapchats from his like students that were in the 1200 building. So like, I know some people, some staff at our school didn't think it was real or like didn't know what was going on. And I was seeing Snapchats of very graphic images that I knew and I felt like it was coming, you know, that that was like, I think the biggest fear that I knew it was real. I saw what was happening. And I'm just waiting. I know you stayed at MSD for a few years after what motivated you to leave? I left officially in October 2021. So I stayed after the last students who were there at that time graduated 2020 was that year i never wanted to really be in education my mom was a teacher in broward county and she told me i could not be a teacher (laughs) because of her experiences you know um and then i ended up in broward county schools anyway as a speech pathologist and i loved my relationships with the students i don't think that i i don't want to work with any other age other than high school i love high school Um, It's just more of the school system that was kind of draining. I also felt after we graduated all of those kids in June 2020, the fear or the uncomfortableness of, oh, now we have to go back to normal because no kids have experienced this when we have an entire staff of people who still need trauma-informed education or trauma-informed workplace um, and things to be understood That was kind of a stressor for me that I was like, oh, I'm not sure how this is going to look. And I think it was more just time to get out of the school system. But the job that I ended up getting, I'm still working for Broward County Schools. (laughs) Now I go to all of the high schools of Broward County, which is many, many schools. Um, I drive a lot in this job. And what's really interesting about this job is no matter what school I choose on a Monday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Thursday, there's a drill. At every single one of these. So you think that you're kind of safer, that what are the chances if I have 45 schools and I arrive on a day, there there is a fire drill almost every time. So I was at a school over a month ago that a student brought a gun to campus and didn't find out until afterwards that that's what the lockdown was. And I don't feel any safer in this this position, unfortunately, I probably feel less safe because I don't know the layout of the schools. I don't know. I don't have a key. I don't have any place to be safe. And I think I'm just burnt out from this, the school system in general, like being stuck. So that's what was my reason to leave was I didn't want to stay longer in a, in a school, but I ended up getting like a somewhat promotion to a speech language program specialist. So I support all of the SLPs at all of the high schools in Broward County, which I love doing. I love collaborating with the adults. I think another reason that I wanted to leave was just the pressure that the parents put on at this school. It's like known, you know, the Parkland parents are difficult. And there's another layer of, you don't know what my child has gone through that maybe they were in middle school and they have their own experience of the trauma that happened at our school. But it's the parents that say, you don't, you don't get it. And we're like, no, we actually get it a lot. You know, we do understand we have firsthand experience. I think I needed to take myself away from that for a little bit. And maybe I'll come back to Douglas at some point. I also live like 40 minutes away. From, I live in Fort Lauderdale. So that was a big thing for me that I had to wake up at like 5.15 in the morning. I had to drive there, be there by seven. At, like I spent so much time in the car. I was going through an audiobook a day. It was all of these factors put together that gave me the courage to leave. It was scary to leave because as much as it's uncomfortable at Douglas, it's comfortable. And when I try to explain this to people, they're like, but So much has happened. And I don't blame the building. I don't blame the school 
I, I remember when we came back, there were some people who were scared to set foot back on campus when they let us get our cars and everything. Yeah. And that's not how I felt. I was like, no, that like the building isn't going to hurt me. I'm okay. It was a person that did this. But I think it's very valid that people had hesitation to step foot back on campus or could not come back. I think that's completely valid. I remember when Sandy Hook happened, and I've shared this on other mm -hmm. episodes. I was teaching. I was at South Plantation. And my son, who is now a senior, will be 18 shortly after this episode or before this episode airs, which in and of itself is nauseating. But he was in first grade at the time, like those kids. And I mm -hmm. like I remember this so clearly. And I was on the phone with my husband as the news was coming in. And he was asking, you know, do you still feel safe teaching? And yeah, of course I do. And then when this happened at our school, you know, do you still feel safe being there? And I said, yeah, like, do you want to keep teaching? Yes, mm -hmm. because there is comfort in the community of teachers. I don't mean the community at large, yes. but like mm -hmm. being in that setting of people who have this shared experience, even though all the students are gone, you know, it's those of us who are still there, who were there, you know, there is this sense of community that like we do get it. I have thought about what would happen if I went to teach somewhere else. And, you know, you are certainly in a unique position where you get to go and support all those schools. But if I were to go somewhere else, I would only be at one place. And then I didn't want to be that teacher from that school and feel mm -hmm. like I was walking around with this scarlet letter on, you know, like if I have a rough day or, mm -hmm. you know, the fire alarm sets me off, you know, then I'm bugging out by myself because nobody else gets it. Like, does that make sense? I, I completely understand. And that was um, something that I think of with the students a lot that shortly after everything happened, I had students that did not return that the parents were like, nope, we can't put them back in that. And I think looking back now, that probably was not the best thing to do for, for many of them because the coddling in a way that could happen at Douglas or that did happen to not ring the fire alarms for us was not going to happen at other schools. So basically they're being put into a school with no safety blankets while we were being given safety blankets to help them adjust. And I think, I, I wonder how those students are doing or if they were given accommodations or I know it's helpful for me at my district position. I do ask for them to give me all dates of the fire alarm for my office, which I'm only at one day a week. The rest of the time I'm at the schools, I can't possibly know what day at every single school they have a specific drill. And that's only the drills. Those are only the planned ones. There's popcorn being burnt in microwaves every day across the district. You know, I think it was for us to be at Douglas right after to help us re readjust as long as I mean, that took a long time. And there's some not helpful things that happened. And I think of um, things with great intentions that just didn't play out the way they should have. So for example, I remember I, I don't remember what event it was, or if it was just welcoming us back, but they had all of the staff in the auditorium. And they brought the band in, the drum line just started it. And I don't know if you remember this, but this was like shortly after that we are all so jumpy as, as people, you know, and that scared so many people like adults holding their ears. And it was just too soon after. And the intention was like, let's, let's like amp them up. Let's, let's get the teachers excited and whatever. And I think it's things like that, that I want to be a trauma informed consultant. I want to check ideas and just be like, that's not a good idea. Like, you know, that's not a trauma informed idea. Like, let's try something else. That's a little bit quieter or not as jarring to people. And it's in an enclosed room. Like it was so loud and it scared people. I do remember that they did that for years before you got there. Mm -hmm. The band would perform at like our Friday before school kickoff mm -hmm. in the auditorium before we got all the data that nobody wanted to listen to. Right. And it happened every year, but mm -hmm. it was, pardon the pun, a little tone deaf to do that following such a massive 
event at our school that would startle us anyway, because the kids were up and down the aisles. They weren't on the stage and somebody's trumpet could be in your ear and the drum line and everything else. So I want to kind of circle back to what you were talking about with trauma-informed care and trauma-informed classrooms. What is trauma-informed care? Great question. So the way I like to explain it, there's a book out by Oprah and Dr. Bruce Perry called What Happened to You? And the whole phrase of that is adjusting our initial response of what happened to you or to what's wrong with you to what happened to you. So when we look at someone who's acting a little bit strange, whether they're jumpy for for a reason that we can't predict and our initial response is, what's wrong with that person? Why are they acting that way? If we just adjust our mindset and say, what happened to that person? And not literally asking them, we're not trying to go around and just asking people why they're acting a certain way, but it's understanding that we might not be able to see or know what they've gone through and how can we make things better for them? So after what happened at school, I Googled, how do I work with students who have been traumatized? And I found through a long time of searching trauma-informed care. And I'm just trying to make my speech sessions not hurt anyone. You know, how can I make this safe is my biggest question. And safety can be a ton of things. Safety can be physical safety, which had been broken at the school. There's a lot of things. Trust had been broken at the school. So I can try to provide within my classroom all of those aspects of trauma-informed care. There's six pillars of trauma-informed care. I can try my best to provide those to my students to make learning happen. We also know that survival brain is real. So after we go through something, our brain is just in survival mode. We can't learn our best. So that was part of the problem I saw is, as you know, some teachers will were full force into, hey, we have AP exams. We got to get cracking. And maybe that was a way that they needed to they needed to be busy. Then you have the opposite people that couldn't do anything. They were not ready or they did too little. There were some classrooms that were just video games for, for months, you know? I don't think any of them are right or wrong. I think that some children needed to work. Some children needed to relax. You know, some staff felt the same way. People heal differently. And we see now some of the people that were most vocal at the beginning of all this that needed action have kind of quieted down now. And the people that were quiet at first that needed time to kind of process it on their own, now they're comfortable speaking. And I think all of this is valid. And I've been teaching now speech pathologists, other healthcare professionals, other education people. I want to teach them about trauma-informed care. And really, yes, we do a traumatic event at our school. We need to be educated on trauma-informed care before something happens. What we needed at the school was trauma-sensitive or trauma-specific services. I don't feel like we got any of that. You know, just thinking back to what we had in the media center, again, well-intentioned, but all of those counselors there in, you know, this kind of triage wellness center, but the kids would go in and get comfortable with someone. And then the next time they went, that person wasn't there and they had to tell their story all over again. Next, and, next to next to another person who's telling their story with like it it was yes. just this this open area of trauma just coming out. Yep, no privacy and mm-hmm. no continuity with services. Exactly. Right. Yeah, and it like that was horrible. I felt for the kids, and it was certainly understandable why they didn't want to take part in that and why they were so hesitant to utilize the wellness center when it was like formally Mm -hmm. introduced in the two portables that ironically were outside are now outside of my classroom. But I, you know, I think about what you said with trauma informed care and having these trauma sensitive resources and, and spaces and all of that. What can other like non classroom educators, other people on campus, what can they do to care for their students and themselves in the aftermath of trauma? Caring for for yourself is one thing. I think it's understanding what you need to like recharge. And in my presentations, I now travel across the country 
teaching about trauma-informed care. It's being able to reflect on your own triggers is the biggest thing. Because I think many of us at the school had never kind of evaluated themselves in any way before or didn't know what they looked like when stressed. And so it was a bunch of dysregulated adults trying to regulate dysregulated children. And it was chaos for months, years, but those first couple months was just like everyone was on edge, like a sound would set people off. So I ask teachers, adults who need to be the adults in the room, what do you look like when triggered? And triggered can just be stressed. What do you look like when stressed? Are, do you snap? Are you very quick to yell at someone? Because what if you're yelling at someone then sets someone else into survival mode or like your students? Is any learning going to be happening? Like it, it's this cycle of you are trying to control the room to the best of your ability but I need to reflect and I've become very good at reflecting on my own emotions or what I look like when I'm stressed. So I know that, Ooh, I need to take a minute before I respond because I know that I am stressed. So one thing at the school that always stressed me out was lawnmowers. That is even in my apartment, the sound of lawnmowers makes me so angry. And at the school, I had a little patch of grass right under my area. That's where that big eagle is downstairs. Mm -hmm. They have that patch of grass. So I would be trying to give services and you would just hear rawr, 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 like for hours and it was loud and I can't hear inside my own room. And I know that I'm not nice. I'm not <laughs> as loosey goosey with that. So if someone's coming in my room and a student is coming in my room for services and I'm quick with them. Well, what if that student has to walk on eggshells with their parents at home or something like that? And they are aware that my personality is not what it usually is. So I have to reflect and say, oh, I know that the lawnmowers do affect me. So let me take some deep breaths. Let me use some of my coping strategies to make sure I don't stress out someone else. Let, let me make sure that this speech session is going to be beneficial for the student. You know, that's why we're there. And that's the same thing that teachers do is if you're expecting a child to learn while their brain is in survival mode, it's not going to happen. So you yelling at them, you stressing them out more is not going to fix the situation. You mentioned the six pillars of trauma-informed care. Can you share what they are? Sure. So depending on what site you'll look at, there's anywhere between like three and 12 pillars of trauma-informed care. So it's transparency, voice, choice, safety, collaboration, mutuality, um, and then historical, cultural, and gender issues is the, the last one. So by looking at all of these areas, so transparency is something that I talk about a lot within how it could have been more trauma-informed for us as staff. There are many things that happened within our school. We had the changing of the administration. And because we did not have trust yet in that administration to come in, transparency was extremely important. But the intentions behind, oh, well, we can't tell them this because that's going to hurt them. You know, the more transparent you can be builds trust. And it's the same for us with our students, the more transparent you can be. So if I'm having a hard day that maybe I'm a little teary or something like that, and a student comes into the room and immediately notices that, or maybe they don't notice it, but I just say, hey, heads up guys, like I'm not feeling the best today. I'm having a bad day. Like that's better than them looking at me and trying to assess the situation on their own, trying to figure out what it is or how to help. Maybe they don't know how to help an authority figure when they're not feeling great, you know? So all of these I try to provide in my sessions and it's something that teachers can do. They can try to be a safe space. That's one thing that we heard a lot after everything at the school was, oh, I'm these children's safe place. And I think that was true for many students and many staff that they had a specific person, but to assume that your entire classroom views you as a safe person is not what we should be doing. We should take into 
into account who our students say, you know, Miss A, you are my safe person. Because whenever the fire alarms went off, we would have kids running to whoever their safe person was, right? Like didn't matter if they weren't in the class with them. They're like, I need to go see Miss Learner. I need to go see Miss A. So it's okay that we're not everyone's safe person. It's great that the kids have someone that they can trust for those times. And that builds trust, transparency, collaboration, mutuality, all of these important aspects to make our rooms a safe place. For those who don't know, you have your Instagram account, PTSD SLP, which I am obsessed with because we're pals. But beyond that, like I learn a lot And I'm not a speech language pathologist, but I do have PTSD. Mm -hmm. So I am a huge follower and fan. I I would love for you to share what the account is, things you've done with your platform, the speaking engagements you've had, and how you've kind of taken this tragedy and change for you and turned it into something positive to help others. In July of 2019, so it's just over a year since everything at our school, I had been thinking about maybe making an Instagram or something like that. Like I needed a place to share my resources. So that year, a little bit more than a year after, there were several other school shootings. There were many others. And then there were shootings before us as well. So what ended up happening was every time one of those events happened, Someone would say, Rachel, I know this person at Oxford. Can I give you their number? Like she's a speech pathologist also, or she's a teacher here. Can I give you their number? So I started making this terrible little group chat of people that have experienced very similar things. And I would send them all the resources that we were given because it was such a national level. You know, we were given great supports for our students. Not so much for the staff, I would say, looking back, but for the students, I think that there there was good information. Some of it was a little too late, you know, yeah. um, to be helpful. But I we did have all of these resources after a year that I was like, how beneficial would it be if someone is given this immediately? So I would end up sending this huge Google Doc of all of these papers that we were given for people to look through. So Through that, I was like, all right, I keep adding to this chat. I can't, you know, what if I just post it to everyone? So that's where I created the Instagram PTSD SLP. And it became a place that people would ask questions about PTSD or not so much the school itself, but they would, knowing what my background is, I think people were comfortable asking me questions or I have a student who is going through this trauma. How would I work with them? I have this person that I'm dealing with Uh, myself. I've gone through trauma. So it was a a place that people could ask questions and I could post them for other people that had the same questions. And it's now grown over the past, I think what, this is the fifth year that I'm going to have it. I've like 7,000 something followers, which has been great. This year has been the biggest year that I've had with speaking engagements that I think it's coming from post pandemic that people were really interested during COVID or after COVID of what do I do? Like looking into this mental health aspect of things that people were like, we're seeing it now. How do we deal with this? So After COVID, a lot of people have reached out from universities, from hospital systems, from school districts that are like, can you teach this specific group of people about trauma-informed care? And I don't teach about what happened at Douglas. Like, this is really one of the only times I talk about my story exactly on something like this, because I feel like people know what they're getting into listening to this podcast, that they are here to hear our stories. When I teach on trauma-informed care, I want to be as trauma-informed as possible, so I don't share my story. I basically only say that I'm Rachel. I worked at Stoneman Douglas during this year, and my community experienced trauma as well as myself. And that's it, because what I found is people start to stress about what they will hear. And I don't want them sitting in a six-hour session that I'm giving saying, when is it going to happen? When it, when am I going to hear too much? Am I going to hear too much? I, I don't want them to be in survival mode. I want them to be able to hear the content of what I'm saying. So it's been a great year for for presentations and people have gotten so much out of it. I did a six-hour presentation in New York at a university that was 
a big undertaking. I don't know if I want to do that again, but it's all prepared and ready to go. But I think for the most part, people are doing like virtual stuff that they want me to talk to their private practice for 30 minutes or an hour, or they want me to do a three hour session or multiple little sessions. And it gives me a lot of hope to see people asking about this, that they want their administrators to be trained. They want their employees to be trained on it to best make sure that we are not causing harm for whoever we're over. Right. So I think trauma informed care needs to be in place before crisis. I love that you do this. And I, I know that you are providing resources to schools and educators who deal with students who deal with gun violence Mm -hmm. outside of school. Because Mm -hmm. as we know, and as I've said a million times, school shootings are such a small percentage of gun violence. And we don't know the experiences that our students have had. And we don't know the baggage that they carry. So the fact that you are providing these resources to educators and other school-based personnel, and then, of course, medical and, you know, everything outside of a school setting you are providing these teachers with resources to help their students, regardless of the trauma they face, which could very well also include violence, gun violence at home, which I think is tremendous. How have you, through all of this, how have you taken care of yourself and your own mental health? Because I imagine it's very taxing on you even if you don't share your story when you're presenting, just being up in front of people and talking, because I do presentations at journalism conferences. Mm -hmm. And even if I'm talking about like, I don't know, writing headlines, like after an hour, it is exhausting and mentally draining. So how do you care for yourself? So number one is I continue to go to the therapist that I started seeing right after everything happened, which I'm a big advocate that you need to have a therapist in place before something happens, before you hit rock bottom. Because I remember just going into a random therapist and sharing my story and then not liking that therapist, going to another therapist, having to do this all over again. And I did it three times until I found this lady who I still see to this day. She's fantastic. And that was me at rock bottom. She had to kind of figure out who I am after I get out of that. So that was really hard. I still see her. I do check-ins. Like, I think I go every three weeks right now, which is great just for when things are good and when things are bad, because I need to have it in place for when things don't go so well. Um, So that's number one. My way that I like to decompress is I like to watch TV and movies. Like I am someone, I'm an introvert. And I think it's super important to know that whether you get energy from being with people or does it take away energy to be with people? So I definitely, after social situations, need to come back and just have silence. So after these big speaking engagements, like I did my six hour one, I don't think I talked to anyone for five days. So that that was a lot, you know, but I think it's so important that I'm able to reflect and know that, all right, I really shouldn't plan anything the day after one of those big presentations, because I'm not going to be the nicest. I'm not going to be able to be my full self because my social battery will be at zero. I need some space to kind of build that back up again. That's part of the reflection that I think everyone should do is understanding themselves a little better of what helps their stress, what doesn't help their stress. And I actually started working at a Pilates studio after school, which is, I I don't know why I added more things to my plate, but it's nice just having a couple hours in the afternoon. It's not like going back to working in a restaurant that they need me for like an eight to 12 hour shift. I don't have the capacity to do that, but I can sit at a gym for three hours and possibly work out when I'm there. So I do know that movement is good for me. I don't like to move, which is why I'm paid to go sit at a gym and have the possibility of working out, which is nice. So I think all of these things are the way that I'm taking care of myself now. I also need space with my job as a speech pathologist because it is very taxing and I don't work the summers with ESY or anything like that. I need to put those boundaries of, okay, I work this many months during the year. I can't do the speech thing on top of that. I could work after school in a speech clinic, but I don't want to do that. Listening to you talk about your your social battery running low, I feel the same way 
when I present and when I, if I'm able to go to a workshop without students, I have that ability to go back to my hotel room, put on a stupid show or watch something on, you know, streaming on my computer. It's difficult when I'm traveling with students and I've presented and I can't decompress and disconnect like that. But I do appreciate the quiet alone time when I have it. I'm not an introvert. I'm very much an extrovert. (laughs) But I find that I am, I guess, an introverted extrovert in that Mm -hmm. I love being around people. I love talking and doing and all of that. But I also very much value my quiet and alone time. And I could sit at home for days and not leave and not talk to anybody and I'd be okay. But then I also like the social aspect of things. So it's, you know, it's difficult in doing these presentations and, you know, conference situations, because if I'm not there by myself, I don't have that luxury, but I totally take advantage of it when I do. I, I just I just went to Boston to present um, at our national conference, which which is like four days of speaking. So in those moments, I knew that for four days, I'm not going to have the ability to go back and sit like I know that my I had to deal with it. But at that same token, I understand that when people come up to me, I have to mask a little bit harder. I have to be like, oh, you know, my battery is really spent right now, but I'm here for these four days. And I kind of measure it throughout that time of what I'm able to do and don't put myself past what I'm able to do. Um, but I, that's part of that, just like self-reflection of understanding yourself a little better and what your needs are. So you don't fly off the handle. I just wanted to say like how proud I am of you and what you Mm -hmm. have taken on with like ending gun violence, um, position and everything, because that's something that I haven't really been able to do within my scope. Like I, on my page, don't post about gun violence or anything like that because I find that it alienates people. If I post something about gun violence, I have so many unfollows after that. And Mm -hmm. I want the message of trauma-informed care to be heard. So by teaching them about trauma-informed care, I'm hoping that they understand the message of ending gun violence also plays into trauma-informed care, you know? Well, I I appreciate the props. I I do this because this is what I know. It's my background in journalism and getting out there and doing the research and understanding what's at the core of the story and, and telling the story. So in the aftermath... And in the years since, like we have each in our own way found our niche and our lane Mm -hmm. for things. You know, you have taken it and run with it with trauma-informed care and everything you are doing through your social media platform. I partnered up with Abby and Sari to create this organization that I'm sure isolates people and makes them feel uncomfortable when I post things. But this is what matters to me. And it did even before everything happened at school. And, you know, we all just kind of revert back to this is what I know. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what I always tell my students when they go and conduct interviews and do things like it's always easiest to start with what you know and who you know. And being outspoken, being that extrovert, this is what I know. I've always been an advocate and an activist and a feminist. And I can blame hippie parents from the sixties, but this is like, this is my lane. And I, you know, I hope, I hope that the work that I'm doing and that we as an organization are doing is, is reaching people, you know, in having guests like you in having other people who are in this space, but in a different Mm -hmm. part of the space, you know, is shedding light on how multifaceted and like nuanced it all is that we are both in education, you and I, but we are doing very different things and approaching it differently. But the end result is the same. Mm -hmm. We want the kids to feel safe. We want our coworkers and colleagues to feel safe. And at the end of the day, that's all any of us should want. I cannot thank you enough for the work that you have done and will continue to do. And it is so, so important that people understand how to provide 
trauma-informed care, trauma-informed classrooms, and just be more mindful. Even if you haven't been through something traumatic and you're not even dealing with someone who has been through something traumatic, just being more mindful of how you act and what you say, because you don't know where the other person is coming from. And that's, that's the biggest thing for me as, as a speech pathologist is what we say, you know, and there's so many like flippant comments that were said to us after. And then after, you know, throughout the years, people have just said things that I look at them now and I say like, why would you say that? Like, that's a weird thing to say. And, and it could be something as simple as like, well, at least you survived or something like that. Or, you know, that's, that's what it sounds like to us, even though that wasn't their intention. They're just like, I'm happy that you like survived and like, that's nice, but we really have to pay attention to what we say because it can be harmful. And what we say to students, what we say to other staff, what we say to people who are experiencing trauma, I evaluate every single thing that I say, like to anyone, just a general public. I make sure that who's going to take this not well, what experiences might they have had that lead them to not take this well. And it's not a problem with them. It's a problem with whoever is saying it, you know, something that I always said and my husband did, too. We still do to our kids who are almost 18 and 15 as we're recording this. It's not just what you say. It's how you say it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the tone. It's the intention. It's all of those things. So while those people who said to you, you know, at least you survived, Mm -hmm. I'm sure there was good intention Mm -hmm. behind it. It's the delivery. Mm-hmm. And that and the reception of that delivery. So I think that's something everyone can walk away from this episode real, <laughs> realizing. But that's something that we've said to our own kids at home. You know, it's not just what you say, it's how you say it. And you have to be mindful of that because you don't know how what you say will be received. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to follow Teachers Unified to End Gun Violence on Instagram and threads at Teachers Unify and follow the podcast on both platforms at Teachers Unify PC. Mm-hmm.